Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. So hello uh, and welcome to the Kadir Journal. I'm Joseph and Merrick can say hello. Um, we're joined today by Kala Walsh. Um, it's a really really excited to have you here um, and discuss a little bit more about youth anti-imperialism, um, solidarity work with Cuba and with Palestine. But before getting started, Kala, if you would like to introduce yourself and then we can start asking questions. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, my name is Kala Walsh. I'm from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I'm currently living in Montreal, Quebec, um, attending McGill University, where I'm studying history and French. And I've been uh, involved in politics since I was 15. I started out working um, in the youth climate strike and the climate movement. Um, I worked on a lot of um, democratic campaigns and progressive primary challenger campaigns, um, but very much became disillusioned with, you know, establishment machine politics and um, was pushed into um, a much more revolutionary anti-imperialism, um, which kind of defines the organizing I've been doing um, for the past year, year or two or so. Um, so right now I'm involved in the Palestine Solidarity Movement, um, as well as the Cuba Solidarity Movement um, through some local groups um, here in Montreal and in Boston. And I was also just elected as one of the co-chairs of the National Network on Cuba, um, which I think we'll talk about in a bit, but that's a coalition um, of all the Cuba solidarity organizations that are active um, in the US. So yeah, thanks again for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Awesome, and it's a pleasure to have you. And I think we can pick up right there in maybe kind of a, a preemptory question and going into discussing about Cuba a little bit, which is, as you as you just mentioned, making that transition from electoral organizing, um, youth politics, uh, as it's commonly discussed, to anti-imperialism, to a kind of radical solidarity, um, which has a horizon of, uh, of liberation. I, I'm really fascinated by that. I, I think Merrick and I, we've talked a little bit before, and we talked um, with the Guerrilla History podcast a bit about making that transition um, ourselves and kind of emerging to a degree, I guess, waking up, you could say, almost out of uh, a sort of reformist or electoral politics. Um, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about your experience with that and what made you move towards anti-imperialism as the exigency of your politics rather than continuing with what I think is like the very limited horizons of what is otherwise discussed as youth politics. I, you know, I know that that's often within this kind of like um, youth are the future, you know, we we know everything like we're especially in the climate movement, that's typically how it's presented um, or whether it's against gun violence or any kind of youth centric movement typically frames things that way. But I wonder if we could almost reflect on like the degree to which sometimes as as young people, as students, we 
are always in the process of learning, actually. And sometimes we are, are very susceptible to opportunism, careerism, the other things that limit our politics. So I wonder if you could reflect on that a bit um, and how it helped you sort of wake up from that and move towards anti-imperialism. Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, I think moving towards anti-imperialism um, was kind of inevitable because I think uh, contradictions inevitably rose because of the work that I was doing while still considering myself a progressive, uh, a socialist, anti-capitalist, um, whatever labels, you know, I felt like fit for me um, while also working in these establishment spaces, working for candidates um, like Democrats who um, are really good at talking the talk um, and making themselves seem really progressive um, and maybe even being progressive, at least domestically, while still supporting U.S. imperialism and genocides and wars and interventions abroad. Um, so the specific turning point where that happened for me um, was after I'd worked for U.S. Senator Ed Markey's campaign, um, which I got involved in in March 2020 um, as a student organizer and um, worked with a group of my friends to um, kind of help build a youth movement to reelect him because he was being challenged um, from the right by a Kennedy um, and Markey was the co-author of the Green New Deal, which to us was a really important policy priority um, because, you know, fighting climate change was important to us as young people. Um, looking back and having much more critical thought, the Green New Deal is not an end-all be-all to climate change. Um, it is kind of green imperialism and will not actually, you know, address um, how colonialism and imperialism and capitalism are at the very root of the climate crisis. Um, but anyways, we we worked for this candidate. We um, kind of transformed how he was considered as a politician. We became the first uh, campaign to defeat a Kennedy in the state of Massachusetts and um, went like very viral. Um, and it was it was a lot. And we had a lot to benefit from as, as people working from his uh, for his campaign. You know, we got media attention. We got career opportunities. We were very close to um, this senator and his office and his campaign staff um, and in that position of power. But we also um, didn't think enough about Markey's actual positions beyond those that directly concerned us during the campaign. For example, um, his foreign policy stances. Um, Markey has a really bad record um, on Palestine, and that was kind of brushed under the rug during the campaign because Kennedy was only slightly worse than him on those issues. And after um, he was elected, he um, quickly took some some stances that we, um, some of us, you know, really disagreed with. For example, he um, voted against, um, you know, condemning or changing Trump's um, decision to make the U.S. embassy in um, in occupied Palestine in Jerusalem, um, you know, further legitimizing the Israeli occupation. And then in April and May 2021, during the evictions um, in Sheikh Jarrah and the Israeli siege on Gaza, um, he put out some tweets and a statement, basically both sides in the situation, saying that the Israeli occupation had the right to defend itself from the decolonial Palestinian resistance. And um, to me, that was a really big turning point, um, realizing how um, I had been so siloed on this issue of 
you know, electing a senator who was good on climate, who was promoting the Green New Deal, while completely ignoring that he was actually and just as imperialist and capitalist as any other U.S. politician is. So we started a public pressure campaign. Um, we collected thousands of signatures to um, try to change his mind on this issue to get him to take a better stance. Um, that got a lot of media attention, ended up in, um, you know, a meeting directly with his Senate office where we basically asked politely, can you please stop supporting genocide? And they said, no, like there's nothing we can do or we'll get back to you on our position, which is how pretty much every um, legislative meeting um, I've been in goes, um, but especially, especially when you're trying to push something anti-imperialist. Um, and the demands we were asking were very minimal demands, such as conditioning military aid to the Israeli occupation based on their human rights violations. We weren't even asking them to, you know, support the Palestinian resistance or to, you know, support the, the full liberation of Palestine. So after that, um, I think I was very much radicalized both by seeing um, how these politicians could, you know, make commitments to young people um, on certain issues, but ultimately were just loyal to the um, pro-Israel lobby, to um, their Zionist donors. And um, I also was radicalized by um, having gone through this whole pressure campaign, trying to, you know, ask a politician, putting pr individual pressure on them to change their stance and having it not work at all. Um, and I think that made me see both the um, the futile nature of, you know, trying to just use these electoral systems to make changes when really um, just operating within these systems often further legitimizes them and really limits our framework and what we can say and how honest we can be um, about the, the issues that we are trying to address. So um, after that, I um, ended up getting much more involved in the Palestine Solidarity Movement because I it was both just as important to me as, as an issue, of course, and as someone living under a government who is responsible for the Israeli occupation's continuance, um, giving millions and millions of dollars to the occupation a day. But also I felt, you know, a personal obligation having worked for um, for Markey, who is now back in the Senate um, upholding the occupation. So I joined BDS um, Boston and I um, ended up stepping back from a lot of the political organizing work I'd been doing, you know, in electoral politics in Massachusetts and committed myself to um, doing political education and really trying to unlearn um, a lot of the, you know, Im imperialist propaganda that I had absorbed um, throughout my, my lifetime living in the United States, being educated by the U.S. education system, um, and also to, um, you know, reconsider how my position as someone who had been staffed and employed and paid by these democratic campaigns had compromised my own ability to see what was right and wrong and to understand, you know, imperialism when it was right in front of me. So I think in a broader sense, um, young people often come into organizing spaces with really radical ideas and radical intentions. And unfortunately, um, often the, the options that exist for us to be organized um, are de-radicalizing. And especially when um, young people are considering getting involved in politics as a career option, um, they look to campaigns, they look to Capitol Hill, and no revolutionary change is going to 
happen by just pursuing a career for your own benefit in those spaces. Um, that's that's just a fact. So to me, I think when I look back, I can really see how um, even when I, you know, when I entered the climate movement, I considered myself an anti-capitalist. I considered myself an anti-imperialist, but all the work that I was doing showed such big contradictions with those actual ideas. And only when um, I committed myself to disrupting these systems and not just working within them, trying to change them from within, but um, but to be also working outside them and attacking them and and disrupting them. And of course, I think I think there is still, you know, um, some strategic potential in terms of trying to subvert systems from within. But when that is the only sole focus of your work, it's it's not productive um, at all. And I think um, we really need to to look at how um, the the NGO, the the nonprofit industrial complex, the NGOization of a lot of our activism um, in the imperial core um, and in any capitalist society um, serves to to de-radicalize and um, disempower the the actual impact of the work that we are doing. Definitely agreed, and I think you know, Merrick and I have talked a lot about this as well. Like I, I was very involved with sort of Bernie Sanders kind of like progressive uh, work for a while. And immediately afterward, it was kind of questioning stuff like the Green New Deal, um, the kind of entryist politics that we have in a lot of progressive spaces in the US. And even just generally thinking about like the limitations of a, a non-anti-imperialist perspective, like one that is just trying to build socialism in the context of the united states without any thought about you know the us as an empire domestic in, in its domestic occupations and and overseas and that was the kind of thing that prompted me and and other people that i've talked to of kind of like straying away from this so i think it definitely ends up being how do you challenge this overwhelming complex of progressive NGOs of the industry of working in campaigns that come with a lot of benefits, especially in an age where, you know, people are thinking a little bit more, I think, in terms of like careerism about how they're going to pay off their student loan debt than they are about the most kind of radical change that they can help promote. Um, so yeah, I don't know, do you want to follow up on that? Yeah, just to follow up quickly. Um, I think that's so right. And um like I mentioned on the Markey campaign, one thing that was really interesting um, to me was, um, you know, during this um, this surge of support for the petition we were collecting signatures for, you know, thousands of people signed, um, many, many people who had worked on the campaign, staff members, interns, volunteers. Um, but after the attention kind of faded, many of those people went back to working for the same guy. They went to intern or staff in his Senate office, or they continued working for his campaign or other Democrats who had the same exact positions. Um, so I think it's also a problem with people who um, only take stances when there's pressure to, when everyone's posting an Instagram infographic about it. So you feel the need to say something or to change your position. But when it comes down to it, you will go ahead and um, compromise your principles, your alleged principles, again, for your own um, career benefit. And I think I can I can understand why people do things to an extent when they need to pay the bills and when they need to get their paychecks. But as people living in the imperial core, um, 
we have a choice of whether we are choosing to like directly participate in these systems and to directly fund literal genocides like there's that's not an exaggeration in any way like the work by working for imperialist politicians and by advocating for um these these institutions that that fund the israeli occupation supporting a literal genocide and i don't think there's there's any excuse for that um and unfortunately like i think also interpersonal pressure plays a big role in that too um it was really hard having to um step back you know i lost a lot of friends and people i'd worked with for a long time because um i was criticizing this politician who a lot of us had formed this like weird parasocial relationship to and stand and idolized um but i think really um maintaining a clear perspective about like the material forces at play and the material implications of the work we are doing um made that less harder for me because i knew that that stepping back was right and it was hard i got backlash on social media i got backlash from friends and former coworkers but um ultimately like i i know that i made the right choice in doing that and i think um like i said staying grounded in what is actually the material result of the work that we're doing um is really really important because i couldn't you know ignore that any longer yeah um i it, it's interesting that you mentioned like the the social dynamics of these things um because i feel like that's really important i know for joseph was kind of on the side like when we were in high school he was on the electoralism side he was really into the the campaigns and he knew all the candidates and all these things and i was more on the like not even bookish side like i i was just you know more interested in you were in, reading materialism like yeah you already had it i was like you know who's running in the primary merrick's like yeah for little red book yeah yeah you read the little red book so joseph and i kind of had that you know that that relationship of contradiction that allowed us both to grow um and so i wanted to ask you to maybe expand a little bit more on those social factors not only about the pushback and the loss of friendships and kind of like the changing of your social environment but maybe also some of the 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 good things and the 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 community that you're building now with you know other principled anti-imperialist socialists uh, i would love for you to comment more on that particularly young people but i think of course you know um older comrades and you know all other parts of the community are very important but if you could talk about that the good parts and and also if you experience any you know difficulties within those communities or just difficulties in general being part of those um organizing groups uh, that'd be great yeah that's a great question um I guess to start with um like the worst stuff I experienced and then to go to the positives um like I said I kind of stepped back from a lot of the electoral politics um the electoral organizing that I was doing um as I um started to raise my anti-imperialist consciousness um and I think that was also because as I radicalized as I became a marxist as um, I started, you know, learning about systems of of exploitation and alienation and how that impacts our everyday lives. I realized how exploited I had been in a lot of the organizing spaces um, that I had been working in, both um, through, you know, like exploitation of my labor. Um, my friends and I performed so much unpaid labor for the Markey campaign and for many, many other causes. And 
our our passion, um, our excitement was really taken advantage of by a lot of um, you know higher ups in these in these spaces um, to um, to just get us to do a lot of work for them without um, like getting paid for it, um, and also abuse like sexual abuse from people in organizations that I worked with um, was also um, a factor that. I became aware that I suddenly realized I'd been experiencing as I radicalized um, and becoming a communist actually really helped me realize the ways that I had been abused um, because I saw how they were reflective of, you know, the broader systems that we are living in. And um, then I, you know, stepped back from these spaces and that really helped me. And um, since I've gotten like back more intensively into organizing, I have tried to be intentional about, you know, avoiding those, those same things, you know, not um, burning myself out, although burnout is, I don't know, just, I don't, I don't even like the term burnout, because I think it's just an inevitable result of like capitalist exploitation, but um, not overloading myself with organizing commitments and um, still taking time for myself and not um, letting my amount of work alienate me from myself, from my loved ones, from, um, you know, the things that that make me human um, was really, really important. And finding comrades who um, supported me through that and who um, who I could organize with and really trust um, and, and feel protected by um, was absolutely transformative. Um, I'd say, I know we're going to talk about my uh, my experience in Cuba in a bit, but I'd say Cuba is probably the space that I felt that the most. Um, I went with a delegation from the U.S., but we were staying at a camp um, that had been constructed by volunteers um, from hundreds of volunteers from countries around the world. Um, there were about 200 people there or so from like 30 different countries, and we all lived together for um, almost two weeks on this camp um, together every day, you know, sharing rooms, um, going about our lives together and doing work together. And um, I'd never felt like more at home um, and more comradeship than I did then. Um, and I think that was definitely reflective of how this completely different construction of society and of, um, you know, the means of production in Cuba um, has also uh, manifested itself in in the values that people hold and in the ways that they interact with each other, um, which was very, you know, collectivist and community oriented and centered around love and care um, and not, you know, extraction and exploitation um, like we see so much under capitalism. I think the way that we interact in our interpersonal relationships and how we treat each other is, of course, like reflective of the those uh, of the systems that we live in. And unfortunately, that means, you know, a lot of um, the abuses that we experience in capitalism, the ways we are dehumanized by capitalism are often reflected in the ways we we treat others and um, interact in social situations. And so experiencing that um, in a completely different way in Cuba, seeing how socialism um, and revolution can be manifested in how we treat each other was incredible. Um, you know, we saw that in how they treated COVID, for example. Everyone was still wearing masks outside when I went to Cuba, even though they had the highest vaccination rate in the world. And um, in the U.S., no one um, was wearing masks when I went, even in the airport. And of course, I think that it has a lot to do with the 
efficacy of Cuba's education and science um, and health systems, but it also has to do with um, the fact that communities care about each other and, and people are there to support each other and to protect each other. And um, in the U.S., we are very fractured and alienated um, from each other, and there's not that same sense of, of collective struggle or collective care um, because capitalism pits against each other, because capitalism drains everything out of us so that we only have time and energy to think about providing for ourselves. Um, so that was a long-winded answer, but I think um, my, my point is that, um, you know, it's important to not just look within, but look outside of ourselves and see how our surrounding conditions have, have changed us, have humanized or dehumanized us, depending on the context, um, and to really, you know, analyze how we um, can change our behavior and, and try to, um, try to, you know, treat each other um, in more, more humanist, more, more revolutionary um, ways, so um, that we aren't replicating the same systems of oppression that we're trying to dismantle. I think the your comments about Cuba are really, um, really spot on and you know really insightful for your own experience. And it, to me, it's amazing that you were able to go to Cuba at such a young age that you had that kind of um, knowledge and access. Because um, for me here in Miami, uh, I'm, I do like some Cuba work uh, with the Cuba Caravan. Um, we have some organizations here that are you know, very active in, you know, protesting the blockade, pro protesting the embargo. Um, and I, I find that those groups have been, you know, really beneficial for me to find um, like-minded people, like-minded comrades, um, you know, it, it is definitely here like a large tent type of organization. There's people from all different areas, different backgrounds, Cubans, non-Cubans, Americans, people from all over. Um, but I, I still find that everyone who goes to Cuba uh, is definitely touched in a very, you know, profound way. And when they come back, they have a very, you know, communal sense. You know, they're they're uh, people that I organize with are very um, in tuned with how people are feeling. Uh, you know, make sure that people feel heard. Um, and in their organizing work, they're always trying to do more, um, which I, I I just find very you know, insightful. And I'm, I'm glad that you're able to find those similar communities. And I wanted to ask, you know, talking about all this, you know, how did you get into Cuba solidarity work? What was kind of the, the path to you actually going to Cuba? I know Joseph and I are trying to um, plan our first trip to Cuba as well. So, you know, talking about that, um, yeah, feel free to go into whatever. Yeah, that's so exciting to hear you guys might be planning a trip to Cuba. Um... Yeah, I got involved in the Cuba Solidarity Movement less than a year ago. Um, I didn't even know there was a um, Boston-Cuba Solidarity Coalition until um, a comrade of mine told me about it, um, someone that I'd worked with on um, some some legislative um, advocacy um, in, in 2021. And um, I went to my first meeting in January. I immediately felt like I was welcomed into a family of um, these organizers who have really devoted their lives to um, to Cuba solidarity organizing, many people who um, have been traveling there for decades. And the reason I went to Cuba was because um, one of the members of our coalition, um, a woman named Mary, who lives in Massachusetts half the year and in Havana half the year, um, reached out to me and encouraged me to really, really go on 
the May Day Brigade, um, which is the brigade that the National Network on Cuba runs every year um, from late April to early May. And she had gone on the very first um, U.S. Solidarity Brigade to Cuba, um, which was the Vencerimos Brigade in um, 1969, if I'm not mistaken. And um, that transformed her life. Um, of course, now she's living part-time in Cuba. And she encouraged me to go. And um, I said, I have no idea if my parents will let me or if I'll be able to miss school or if I can afford this. But um I want to go. Um, I, I knew I really wanted to go. Um, and we um, I got very involved in the, the Solidarity Coalition. Um, we led um, some what ended up being national fundraising um, to raise money to um, support scholarships for more young people to go on the brigade. My parents were fine with it, thankfully, and I got permission from my school um, to, you know, miss some classes. And I ended up um, using the brigade as part of my senior graduation project, um, which was a great way to um, like actually enable me to go. And um, then I went at the end of April and it was um, a really, really an incredible experience. Um, yeah, the solidarity brigades to um, the U.S. or for, between the U.S. and Cuba have um, existed since, um, you know, the 60s and 70s, starting with the Venceremos Brigade. And um, back then, and even still now, in some ways, they faced a lot, a lot of repression from the U.S. government, which I think goes to show just how important um, traveling to Cuba and learning from the Cuban people and bringing back the truth to the United States is. Um, the blockade exists not just for economic reasons, but it also exists to prevent us from people-to-people -people contact with Cuba. Um, you know, it's not just a blockade of trade, but it's also a blockade of culture, of information, of people. And um, I think in, in general, too, if, if the U.S. empire is really set on not letting Americans travel to a country, usually it's a sign that we should or that we should at least, you know, figure out what's going on there if they don't want us to see it. Um, so I think the two main reasons um, that going on a on a solidarity brigade, just traveling to Cuba is important. Um, and kind of the goals of the brigades are one, seeing the effects of the blockade and of all US policy on Cuba um, to really understand how um, US sanctions are genocidal and um, are hurting the, the Cuban people and preventing them from, you know, letting their revolution develop and reaching its full potential. Um, so then we can come home and tell the truth about that and fight those policies. And that's really important because um, when you see pictures of Cuba um, on Twitter or wherever, um, you see long lines of food, you see crumbling buildings, you see fuel shortages, you see electricity outages. And the U.S. media and the U.S. government all wants you to think that that's because of socialism, that socialism just doesn't work, so there's no electricity, um, which doesn't make any sense, but a lot of people believe. Um, when in reality, those obstacles and difficulties all exist because of the blockade, and socialism is the only reason that Cubans have been able to survive and do so well and have a higher life expectancy than the U.S. despite the blockade. Um, so I think that's a really key uh, understanding. And I think the other main reason why it's important for um, people from the U.S., especially young people, to go to Cuba is to see the effects of the Cuban Revolution and what it is like to build socialism um, in, in its actuality so we can f come home and, and fight for our own revolution here. 
Um, so things we did on the brigade um, that, you know, especially um, were impactful were visiting local industries, um, meeting with workers, hearing about, um, you know, the obstacles posed by the blockade. For example, we visited a truck factory um, where they were, you know, constructing buses that are used for um, like public transportation and um, the public transportation levels in Havana right now, or at least when I went, were at 40% of what they were pre-pandemic because of fuel shortages and because of the additional sanctions that Trump put on and the um, difficulties caused by the pandemic. Um, they're not able to even buy the little spare parts that they need to attach wheels and to build buses. And that is the only reason why that there aren't you know, enough buses to transport people on the streets. Um, we also visited the um, a biotech center where um, they had um, developed, um, I believe five or six of Cuba's own COVID vaccines, which is an incredible feat because throughout the pandemic, um, the, the really genocidal nature of the US blockade was shown by the fact that the US prevented Cuba from importing materials that they needed to develop their vaccines. They even prevented them from buying oxygen during the pandemic um, to help people who had COVID. Um, and Fidel, um, during the special period in the 90s, was very intentional about um, investing in the biotech and technology and science sectors because he knew that that was how um, Cuba could get the resources that it needed um, during this really, really hard economic downturn um, after the dissolution of the USSR and as the US blockade was tightening. Um, because, you know, Cuba has always had um, such strong investments in education and um, science since the revolution. He knew that was an area that, despite all the obstacles Cuba faced, they could really exceed what other countries were doing. Um, and both, you know, selling their um, their innovations, their biotechnological innovations and medications that they've created has been a source of income for the country, um, as well as sending medical brigades um, to other countries um, to support them. Um, so that was really interesting to learn about. Um, I'd say also, you know, connecting directly with Cuban youth um, was such a powerful experience of the trip. Um, because we all are just young people, you know, we have a lot, a lot in common, but also parts of our lives are extremely different, you know, what based on whether you live in the imperial core or whether you live in a country that is um, one of the most hated enemies of U.S. imperialism. Um, one of the friends that I made on that trip, who um, I'm still in touch with, um, Deanna Castillo, she is part of the um, International Department of the UJC, which is the Young Communist League in Cuba. And I learned from her experience um, during her voluntary military service when she was around 18 and 19, um, she served um, at Guantanamo. Um, and I also got to visit Guantanamo um, for um, a conference on abolishing military bases while I was there. And to hear from someone who was at the time, um, at the time that they uh, served um, in their voluntary service and at the time I was there, um, just a year or two older than me, um, talk about serving at the border of the Guantanamo naval base, literally willing to go up in arms against the biggest empire and most powerful military in the history of the earth to defend their revolution was really powerful. That's not, you know, a reality for 
nearly any, I don't think any young people in the U.S., I mean, which young people in the U.S. would willingly just go up in arms, you know, for their country because they really believe, um, you know, in, you know, like <laughs> something great about the U.S. Um, that, um, or that we're under, that um, we're somehow under attack. Um, so to hear from um, from that direct perspective um, was really um, important. And also to see how um, Cuban young people use, you know, social media and other forms of organizing to tell their truth um, and to try to fight back against Western propaganda about Cuba um, was really um, significant. Um, I guess the the last thing I'll share is that this um, this one anecdote I saw in a documentary um, really stuck out to me, and I think um, kind of exemplifies like why it's so important to travel to Cuba. And this was from. Um, uh, a member of the Weather Underground, actually, um, Kathy Budin, in a documentary that I watched um, about her trip to Cuba. I believe she was 17. And she talked about how they were at a parade and some military tanks um, drove through and everyone was clapping. And then she realized that she was clapping for tanks and for a military, which back home, you know, in her her leftist family in New York, were always things that she had been taught were bad and that were wrong and that, you know, we need to stand against militarism. And the Cuban man next to her turned to her and said, you know, we don't like having these weapons and having these, um, you know, means of destruction either, but your country is the only reason that we have to have them. And um, that really has stuck with me since I watched that. And I think um, is exactly um, why we need to go to Cuba is to understand, you know, the, the violences of um, the U.S., blockade of not just the blockade, but also of the warfare, both indirect and direct, that the U.S. has been waging on Cuba since they accomplished their revolution and overthrew U.S. neocolonialism is really important because U.S. policy has defined all the actions that that Cuba has had to take and not been able to take um, since then. Yeah, I, I mean, I, th I think you're I'm so glad that you brought up a lot of elements of uh, Cuban history, because I feel like that is really one of the greatest benefits for um, like young people in the US, um, especially Marxists, to think about is, you know, how the revolution has developed, how it started, how it went through, you know, whether it be through the special period or today or, or you know, during the 70s, 60s. There's so many elements uh, that we can look towards as, you know, areas to learn from. I know for me in particular, uh, I think a lot about Cuba's uh, revolutionary solidarity with movements in Africa, whether they, you know, the the fighting in Angola or, you know, Shea's support for movements in the Congo um, and, you know, all around just this uh, principled support of all the movements which were against apartheid, colonialism, imperialism. I mean, Cuba has so much to give to us when it comes to the history of solidarity work and the history of the development of a revolution and the way we can move towards socialism. Um, so I'm really glad that you brought up, you know, the different elements, you know, being in Cuba, seeing, you know, how young people were, you know, fighting imperialism, being literally at the border of Guantanamo fighting, uh, you know, standing up against imperialism, which the U.S. conducts on the island. Um, just, I, I wanted to, to quickly comment on that and bring up, you know, that we, we've done some uh, conversations with people who did research on uh, Cuba's involvement in Angola in previous episodes. Um, and I know Joseph uh, wants to talk a little bit about uh, Palestine next, but I, I wanted to thank you for your comments on Cuba. 
Thanks. Sorry. I just realized, you know, you asked about how I got involved in the Cuba Solidarity Movement. And I talked about how I got involved in the um, Solidarity Organization. But my first actual introduction to Cuba um, was actually reading um, the autobiography of Asada Shakur, um, an escaped political prisoner from the U.S. who has lived in Cuba um, since her liberation. And um, I, of course, I'd like heard of Cuba, didn't know much about it. I'd heard all, you know, the U.S. propaganda points before then. But then when I read her autobiography and heard about her experience as a revolutionary in the U.S. being repressed by, you know, the FBI's COINTELPRO program, being locked in a cage and then being liberated by her comrades and escaping to Cuba, um, the way she wrote about Cuba was um, an incredible contrast to the U.S. And she wrote this decades ago, um, but about how their society had already, you know, taken steps towards um, massively changing, um, you know, problems that will probably exist in the U.S., you know, for um, for much longer than um, than they had in Cuba. You know, racism, um, she talked about how different um, it was addressed in Cuba versus in the U.S. and how she felt like she was in the first place where she actually felt like her race, you know, wasn't um, the first thing that people saw about her um, and how it was a community where people actually lived, you know, in connection and solidarity and um, and care for each other, like I was all talking about earlier. Um, and I think that's really important, um, too, to, to think about. Um, my first introduction to Cuba was the perspective of a political prisoner from the U.S. who got asylum in Cuba. Um, most things that that the U.S. says about its enemies are actually true about the U.S. And, you know, the U.S. preaches about human rights violations and political prisoners in Cuba, when the reality is that political prisoners from the U.S. have escaped and been liberated in Cuba and are protected by the Cuban Revolution. And the reality is that the human rights violations that are happening in Cuba are in the territory that's occupied by the U.S. where they operate the most brutal, brutal human rights torture camp or most brutal torture camp and violator of human rights in the world at Guantanamo Bay. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to um, to mention that first. Um, definitely recommend Asado's autobiography and learning about um, the, the linked history between liberation struggles within the U.S. empire um, and Cuba. Yeah, completely agree with that in terms of Asada's narrative and kind of what she helps expose about the United States and, and kind of discussing her her refuge in, in Cuba is like the only society that will take her in. Um, and still to this day, I Merrick and I, I know I sent it to Merrick and I, I just finished listening to it, but there is this new podcast um, that came out, which is it's about the weather underground. Um, and they kind of talk about um Asada, of course, is like the role they played in her liberation. And it's really interesting to hear um, her experience in Cuba as being so positive as the U.S. government still, irrespective of what president we have, what kind of Congress we have, you know, however many progressive, whatever there, there are in the U.S. government, she will always be on the FBI's top wanted list. And I think that's a very revealing fact about this country. But I, I feel like just listening to even you kind of describe going to Cuba and seeing it for yourself. It, it's really fascinating to me because as we were talking about in the outset, you know, America and I grew up in South Florida. We got the whole treatment of really like the most reactionary stuff you could imagine um, in high school, just in terms of what people were telling us vicariously about like, this is the reality of Cuba. 
And I feel like that was part of our political awakening as well as just like unlearning that lie first that like what you know the American education system tells you about Cuba is not true and being able to go and, and find out about it for yourself is like a huge first step in kind of learning and and I think especially in the time now where we're so exposed to as as young people on the internet especially this kind of very odious form of like social media imperialism where things are conducted through disinformation through instagram infographics like i think that is really information has has always been but has definitely become through the internet a huge method of of warfare um in in a hybrid war against cuba i think we have to be very aware of like the type of media we consume even the type of narratives we get about cuba but so it's super interesting to learn more about but yeah, I did want to just kind of bring in the discussion of Palestine as well to put it into context with all of the work that you do, um, and especially to talk a little bit about like some of my own experiences with it, but I think sort of like student experiences in general with pro-Palestine work, um, I'm sure you're familiar with um, and, and perhaps are on Canary Mission. Um, we've talked about that, yeah. So it's it's like one of those things where I think pro-Palestine work becomes a kind of unique student experience because it is centered around universities in the United States, has this huge backlash uh, through this kind of um, th this real kind of like watch list that is put out um, by this organization. Um, although personally, yeah, so you can just like drop the link of a Canary Mission in the chat. What's really cool to me about Canary Mission is like reading them now uh with like the right political education you know if i had read them in high school i would have been like oh whoa i should stay away from this person but reading them now i'm like oh this is like your top tweets right here this is like the best things you've ever said um all in one place and i've heard people people say like they use canary mission to meet comrades you know because it's like people who are put on there for a reason but i think it's really fascinating because i i have never personally experienced like any kind of of backlash like that where you are are fully docs like they go get all of your stuff put online it's a very severe form of intimidation of course nothing comparable to what um palestinian comrades face but it to me it's just interesting to reflect on through your your and i was curious to kind of talk about your experience uh in totality of working in pro-palestine work how as a student it can be really really difficult um in the u.s context which is so anti-palestine um and really prevents students from like even giving this kind of palestinian liberation sentiment like the best you get from a lot of progressive groups is a kind of tentative we support the two-state solution whatever but i'm curious to hear more about that also how you got involved um and just kind of your reflections on it now yeah um i think you're very right about getting doxxed. Um, it was pretty crazy, but I think that doxing, the purpose of it kind of backfires because it further radicalizes whoever is being doxxed and also kind of empowers us more to say whatever we believe without a filter um, and gives, you know, further power to the words that we're saying um, because they're receiving so much backlash from groups like Canary Mission. Um, and I wasn't actually, you know, like endangered by um, getting doxxed like so many Palestinians are who 
are fired from work, who are, um, you know, like kicked out of schools, prevented from um, returning to their homeland. And um, I'll just say like Canary Mission, I didn't even realize I was on there until a couple of weeks after it had been posted. Um, that was kind of underwhelming because most of um, like the backlash I'd received and um, the doxing had happened back in June um, when the mapping project was released. And the mapping project is an incredible, incredible um, project and resource um, that I really encourage people to check out. Um, I didn't work directly on this project at all. I just helped promote it um, on social media once it was released because I found it to be an incredible tool for the work that I was doing. Um, and um, as a member of BDS Boston, um, you know, I especially felt it was important um, to support as we are trying to identify, you know, how our local institutions are um, complicit, whether it's direct or indirect. Um, and most people who were criticizing the mapping project and um, calling it anti-Semitic had no idea what it actually was and haven't even actually looked at it. So I definitely encourage people um, to check it out. It's mapliberation.org. Um, of course, it is a map of Massachusetts, but I think it's still a really important tool um, for anyone. And it's really interesting for anyone to look at um, to see how, you know, carceral systems, policing, prisons in the U.S. are connected to imperialism abroad, are connected to the military industrial complex and weapons manufacturers and universities who are complicit doing research, um, you know, scientific institutions, think tanks that um, even like high schools um, are part of uh, are part of these systems. So, um, yeah, I think that the map mapping project, the amount of backlash that it got shows exactly how important that it was. Um, and the institutions that were criticizing it were mostly just mad because they were on there and they didn't want to be called out for their complicity um, in the genocide of Palestine and um, in other, you know, racist and carceral um, oppression. But yeah, I, I got involved in um, Palestine solidarity organizing when um, this whole um, public pressure campaign on Senator Markey um, occurred. And um, that was how I um, got connected to some organizations that um, I still work with, um, like BDS Boston and um, Massachusetts Peace Action. And I think um, when I started getting involved, um, there is a lot of liberal Zionism that is still present in pro-Palestine, and I put that in quotes, organizations. Um, and a lot of that serves to co-opt the actual um, solidarity organizing and um, to kind of water down what the calls are coming from Palestinians on the ground. Um, and I'm not like the best person to speak on this, but I have um, definitely like been lucky enough to have comrades who have, um, you know, educated me and um, I can recommend, you know, resources like one um, resource that I'd really recommend people um, start, you know, subscribing to and reading every day is the Resistance News Network, because so much of the solidarity movement um, in the Imperial Corps and in the West is um, not, you know, vocal enough about supporting the resistance and supporting Palestinians using every means that they have available to resist um, their genocide and the Israeli occupation. So um, Resistance News Network was started by some comrades who had been getting censored on Twitter and Instagram 
and it's a telegram channel um you can subscribe to it at t.me slash palestine resist and they post constant updates of what is happening from palestine on the ground with the resistance um with the constant repression increasing repression of the zionist occupation um and that has been like an incredible resource um to learn about um and to stay subscribed to because so much of what um, we learn about in the imperial court about Palestine is filtered through many, you know, imperialist news channels and um, and liberal Zionist organizations before it actually gets to us. Um, so I think staying connected to what's happening on the ground is something I've realized is so so important um, as we engage in Palestine solidarity work. Um, yeah, I think um, Palestine. Once you kind of understand what is at stake there um i'd always been taught that it's too complicated for me to understand that you know the history is of thousands of years and i just shouldn't take on a stance on it because it's too controversial and once i actually um you know realized that that was it's quite simple you know it's quite simple to understand um colonization it's pretty obvious when it's happening and when settlers are going and invading people's communities and violently kicking them out that is that is settler colonialism in action um and once you understand that framework for Palestine and to see how the the U.S. empire is um, funneling billions of dollars to Israel because um, to the Israeli occupation, because not only um, do they support their colonization of Palestine, but also because it is a harbinger for U.S. imperialism and U.S. interests um, with other countries in the Middle East um, as well. Um, I think that understanding that framework, you can then apply it to any other country and any other enemy of U.S. imperialism. So to me, learning about Palestine was kind of an entry into understanding the anti-imperialist struggle as a whole. And like you mentioned, you know, there's history of solidarity um, between um, Cuba, the Cuban revolution and the Palestinian revolution. There's a strong history of solidarity between, um, you know, the Irish struggle for um, freedom from British colonization and for unification that has been very directly tied um, with the Palestinian liberation struggle. So seeing how um, internationalism is, is present in all these movements um, has um, been really, really important as well. Yeah, um, I think, I mean, the internationalism that you talked about is super important um, and I think I mean, Joseph and I talk about this a lot where uh, normally Palestine is like that very beginner litmus test. It's like you can really tell a lot about someone based on like how they think about Palestine, you know, whether and it's not just like, you know, are you pro-Palestine or, you know, you know where you fall in this, but it's also like how you think about the conflict that's actually going on and uh, the U.S.'s um, complicity and support of the Israeli occupation. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to go um, be more into kind of the youth elements that we've talked about. Um, you know, we're all college students here. Cadre is really an organization dedicated to giving students a platform to, you know, promote anti-imperialism, to to learn together, in, you know, in a in a communal way, in a way of solidarity. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think are some of the, you know, obstacles and barriers that, you know, us as young people have to connect with other young people to, you know, promote uh, an ideology that, is in line with, you know, restorative justice, with Marxism, with all, you know, all these different issues, which are so heavily uh, attacked by, you know, 
the whether it be the military industrial complex with you know engineers and people getting you know brought into the CIA and all these th different you know elements which are constantly attacking uh, you know just like basic human rights. Uh, I would I would love for you to kind of talk about that a little bit. Yeah, um, I think. I'm just, this is on the mind since there's this post that's been going around like today and yesterday, but I think um, the war of ideas, as um, as some people put it, is really being fought on social media. And unfortunately, a lot of young people are getting um, their only education about geopolitics um, on social media and through like Instagram infographics and um, specifically there's this post that's been going around about how the Iranian government supposedly executed 15,000 protesters that like dozens of people have been reposting that's just blatantly false like even Justin Trudeau tweeted it and then deleted it because it's literally fake news um, it's just not true um, a couple protesters one or two were sentenced to death and you know more are incarcerated but 15,000 people have not been executed um and of course the way these are framed is in a way that progressive young people people with good intentions for the most part who who really do care about human rights and really do um you know like want liberation for oppressed peoples um these kind of like CIA psyops um really co-opt that um radical progressive language um that kind of framing put it on like a pretty flowery Canva infographic and put on Instagram and get dozens and hundreds of thousands, millions of people to repost misinformation um, and manufacture consent for regime change and for Western intervention and Western imperialism. Um, we saw that with July 11th as well. You know, there are all these Instagram protests, go, um, all these Instagram posts going around saying SOS Cuba, we need to liberate Cuba, um, which people might feel good posting about because they're saying, oh, I'm just, you know, helping these people on the streets who are protesting when really what they're doing is um, supporting an agenda that is being is being used for justification for military intervention. You know, around July 11th, there's literally politicians in South Florida saying we need to go like send, you know, airplanes and like bomb Cuba. Like we need to bomb Havana. That's crazy. And that's awful. And like people don't realize that them just posting a social media post with supposedly good intentions can help uphold that and can um you know like un indirectly or directly um you know breed support for um western imperialism so i think like i said the war of ideas is being fought on social media i think we really need to be putting out content and political education of high quality about anti-imperialism and about all these issues. And we also need to be doing a lot of education offline. We need to be reading. We need to be in discussion with each other and not just learning on social media. Um, I think social media has important purposes and can be like a good discussion space, especially for sharing news rapidly. Um, but if that is the full extent of your political education, that's really dangerous. Um, so I think we need to um, be doing all of that um, because political education and actually like stepping back from just trying to work all the time and realizing, wait, do I even know like what my own ideas are and what I think about my orientation to the world is really important. Um, within the U.S., we are really never taught to think about ourselves in relation to other countries. You know, this goes back even to the way we're taught about the American Revolution. Like we all suddenly just like decided to like be a country and unite around this American identity and like fight the British when it was way more complicated than that and actually had to do with like 
a lot of different like international interests and support that enabled like the the U.S. colonies to be independent. Um, so that is just like an example of our the entirety of our history and how um, I think we really have this like siloed view um, where we we just think about um, you know like our ourselves and our own issues and when we think about other countries, it's to post um, you know like a savioristic infographic and not wondering about oh maybe like we do live in the most powerful empire in the world and that like the stuff that our government is promoting and saying has actual implications and the thing is like young people can understand when the U.S. government is lying to them about police brutality about COVID about being able to forgive student debt about all this so why aren't they questioning the U.S. government in the same way when they're saying things about other countries especially enemies of U.S. imperialism um, so I think also drawing the connections between these domestic issues, issues that young people are already passionate about and radicalized about, um, like, you know, fighting police brutality, like fighting climate change um, and showing how those things are not possible unless they are also opposed um, to U.S. imperialism. Another example is gun violence, like young people care a lot about gun violence and ending school shootings. Like the U.S. is the biggest arms manufacturer and exporter in the entire world. Um, that's why shootings and violence are such a big problem here. And not being able to see those issues as, as interconnected is exactly what, you know, the state and the ruling class wants. Um, so I think there's a lot, a lot of education to be done. But I think so many young people like have revolutionary potential and are on the right track. And it's a matter of making sure our content and our ideas are getting to them and making them see, letting them see past, you know, the imperialist propaganda. Yeah, I, just to comment a little bit, uh, I think that uh, you make a lot of great points about the connections. Um, I think a lot of young people, while they might be, you know, very passionate about certain things, you know, it's like, you know, whether it be, you know, climate change or, you know, gun violence or, you know, healthcare, I think that, you know, what the biggest or or even, you know, uh, imperialism to some extent, some people are, are concerned with, you know, demilitarization. But I think what people, you know, don't have what a lot of young people don't have is the actual viewpoint of how, you know, the mode of production, you know, and capitalism in totality creates, develops and promotes all of these issues, whether it be, you know, imperialism or it be, you know, the destruction of the climate or the environment or any of these other issues, which as Marxists, we can understand that there's a structure uh, and a connection between these different issues inherent in the way that, you know, commodity production and, you know, revenue production are all related to each other. We can see that. And so when you talk about, um, you know, education, that's what I'm thinking about. And I'm thinking about, you know, when I'm when I go into my reading groups, whether it be through Cadre or, you know, uh, with other comrades, I'm always thinking about how we are developing that idea of that inter interplay of different issues, how the mode of production, you know, just like Lenin said, you know, imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism, how these different levels of capitalism, different facets of capitalism all affect our lives and how that those different elements, you know, which young people are aware of, but aren't actually understanding of how they're all connected, how we can use those smaller elements to radicalize people and, you know, push them to a, a bigger understanding. I mean, just picking up exactly on what you just said was was what I was thinking in terms of like the problem we have, I think, as young people to be very susceptible in response. Like, you know, we're we're definitely at that age where you are not cynical yet, at least not most people. I, I mean, there are a lot of cynical young people who are like completely disillusioned with the world, but a lot of 
people that I meet are very genuine, caring people. They're concerned when they see, you know, something negative happening, but they are very easily trapped into like human rights discourse, which is inevitably a kind of universalistic European and Western, uh, like, yeah, it's a Eurocentric discourse, unfortunately. Um, I think that plays into, I think that plays into everything at the end of the day. Like, I think we have this ability to perpetuate American exceptionalism um, in a very unfortunate manner in terms of like the limits of our critique. I mean, even just thinking in like every kind of um, every kind of like discipline of activism, if you want to call it that way, in terms of like, are you a climate activist? Are you a gun violence activist? Like even the way in which we kind of um, put ourselves into these boxes, people like to have their niche and they like to understand like what they're working towards and and the contours of their their activism so even with with like climate activism if you were to critique someone for advancing the green new deal and say like well what about american imperialism what what will happen to it with the green new deal if you want to bring up lithium in bolivia you know or whatever kind of criticism i think a lot of people immediately are like you know if if they're even able to like comprehend that there's something outside of the united states it's very difficult for them to process what a a world without American extraction and and control and American hegemony would look like and how you can even build things in that because I think they take that for granted like America is in power irrespective of what I do so I'm just going to focus on making my life marginally better and I think that that ends up with like internationalism being a very difficult thing to actually express and I think Merrick I know we've talked a lot about this but I feel like internationalism is almost if imperialism is like this highest stage of capitalism and internationalism is is a high form of activism it's one of the highest we can do in terms of like you said very very broad horizons for what you're trying to do on a global scale it's very difficult to convince people at your university you're thinking about like you know how if you are if you're not like a rich fraternity bro who just like loves living there and has a great time a lot of students are like well what about you know the fact that uh, I hate the dining hall and I I really hate how much homework I get or whatever, and it's like when you when you begin to point out, for example, our at Cornell, like you know we've been doing research about how our school is on stolen land, participated in the colonization of the Philippines, in structural adjustment in Indonesia, in the occupation of Palestine, etc. And you can really go down the rabbit hole with a lot of with every university in, in America. I know that the mapping project has that for universities in Massachusetts, but a lot of students, I think, are like, you know, what is, well, what can I do about that? Because at a certain point, the answer is a kind of like, you can't reform your university. You have to acknowledge that universities play a role in capitalism and imperialism. And with those, they have to be abolished for lack of a better, you know, understanding of the problem. And I think as students, we're in this point where we're kind of like relying on the university. We need it you know, we're here, we've invested so much into it, we just want a job out of it, that to think about what a a productive sort of pedagogical alternative could be, a productive alternative organizing space outside of the limitations of the university is very impractical for a lot of us. So I'm just reflecting kind of on what, what you were mentioning of like why students don't want to mobilize beyond the immediate imperatives of their life. I think it's definitely a problem of education. I wouldn't be so cynical and say every student doesn't care because then we we wouldn't be having this conversation. But 
it's so difficult to convince students to say like your needs are important but what about this kind of like international perspective that you're missing of how your university participates in settler colonialism at home imperialism abroad and trying to get people to think about ways to oppose that is one of the challenges that we're encountering but i don't think it's impossible i think there are, are strategies to awaken people to those options uh, as we're kind of wrapping up i know normally at the end of our discussion we like to ask uh, our guests like what are some of the readings that you've been doing recently like what what kind of recommendations you have uh, for people and also uh you know what what projects you're working on and like uh how people can uh, support them as well awesome um yeah i'm working on hello projects right now um but i guess the main one i'll plug is getting involved in the cuba solidarity movement um if you have a cuba solidarity group you know near you locally um I highly encourage you to join it. Um, if you want to find that, you can go to nnoc.info. Um, that's our website, nnoc.info. And we have a list of all our member organizations um, across the country. So you can join and you can participate in caravans and stands outs against the blockade um, and educational events and also to organize um, to bring people to Cuba. Um, at that same link on that website, you can find um, information about different delegations and brigades to Cuba um, around the year, since I know it's really hard with student schedules to find a time. Um, we're also really, really excited to be um, this year investing a lot more in fundraising for youth scholarships. Um, you know, we're hoping to raise like tens of thousands of dollars so that more working class U.S. youth can come um, to Cuba than ever. Um, because that is just a huge priority um, for our group. Um, and now, like, I'm, I'm excited to, to be in a position of leadership to, you know, like, have a youth directly working on this. Um, so if people are interested in going to Cuba um, or in joining any of those groups, check out that website. Um, people are also always welcome to DM me if they need help getting um, involved. And if you don't have a local group, um, I'd encourage people to start their own if they have the capacity, or you can definitely get involved virtually. Um, there are lots of um, like activities that are still happening remotely. There's virtual pickets and caravans, um, and also you know a lot of political education that needs to be done online. Um, in terms of reading, I'm trying to. It's called Che Guevara Talks to Young People, and it's a collection of Che's speeches um, that he gave to young people and um, a friend of mine who was selling books at our NNOC fall meeting this weekend um, recommended it to me so I bought it um, and it contains my favorite Chase speech um, which is called On Revolutionary Medicine. Um, also the title is sometimes referred to as Child of My Environment and um, I read this speech first because um, when I read The Motorcycle Diaries by Che it was like an appendix so it was at the very end of the book and reading this speech was like definitely my biggest like aha shift moment um, because Che talked about how um, growing up he was a child of his environment and um, his ideas and his orientation towards how we can you know make change in the world were all defined on his own um, you know upbringing and kind of like bourgeois petty bourgeois um, surroundings and only when he um, you know went out and saw you know the impact of capitalism and imperialism and colonialism did his view actually change and he realized that to be a revolutionary doctor first you need a revolution and that um 
I won't I won't spoil the whole speech since I think I want people to read it. Um, but to me, reading that, um, I read it right at the beginning of my senior year of high school, and um, I think everyone should read it. But especially, you know, as you're, you know, at um, this kind of age where you're like figuring out what you want to do with your life, and um, and yeah, like taking your next steps and and just like growing up. I think um, reading that and thinking about your orientation in the world and not just you know achieving your your own accomplishments, becoming in Chase case like the best doctor in the world. Um, or the most revolutionary doctor in the world, um, but to see yourself as as part of something bigger and to see um, not just our roles as individuals, but how we fit into history and um, how what we choose to, to do with our lives um, can be a part of that um, and can be a part of making change is really important. And I think um, learning some of those ideas is the reason that today, like I'm I'm doing this work still and I hope to to be doing it for the rest of my life. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Merrick, I don't know, do you have any last thoughts? I'm, I think that was like a perfect note to end it on, but. Um, Just wanted to say that we really love Che Guevara here at Cadre. Um, Joseph, you should talk about your, the quote that we like, the Cadre quote, and then you can just wrap us all up. Yeah, I mean, I even just like, hearing about that book I, I feel like I came upon it one time um because we have like read stuff and and used it I mean we talked about obviously a lot like the motorcycle diaries and kind of like narratives of of waking up from a bourgeois background if you want to put it that way or you know but obviously Che kind of represents something very special from that perspective in terms of uh an alternative pedagogy like a, a radical pedagogy um and even just like reading his um, his work to like write stuff on on the website or use it in in personal uh, activism, I think when we were naming the group um, to think of the cadre, he also has an essay called um, "The Cadres as the Backbone of the Revolution," and he talks about like what even is a cadre as a kind of uh, a unit of learners or or kind of like students, people who are uh, attaining a political education in order to do the necessary work for the building of the revolution and yeah i think for us as students i think that's kind of the the perfect summary of it uh as learners as young people we're i think as we've touched on in this conversation kind of emerging from a a background of of learning that is highly ideological but we don't necessarily pick it pick up on that as we're growing up we're not really aware of of ideology until we learn later on that you know, every ideology is a class ideology. And when you're exposed to American education, when you get up and say the Pledge of Allegiance in the morning at school or, you know, learn and talk about class and we could go, I think, for hours, talk about like high school education as like a very, very indoctrinating experience, you know, being in uh, an AP government class together, which I think is probably the most um, reactionary class I've, I've ever taken in my life. Um, and I and we took econ too, and it was like AP Gov was like, you know, these are America's enemies. This is what we want you to know about them. It was like almost like you're being debriefed for your CIA mission, and they're like giving you the short report quickly, like what you need to know about Iran, what you need to know about China, what you need to know about Russia. Go out, go into the field, and go and do our work. And it was and it's like a very brutal um, process to kind of wake your mind up from that. But I think in terms of like reflecting on education as a goal as a tool of, of praxis i think it's very 
revolutionary to kind of understand how education can be manipulative and indoctrinating, but also how it can be emancipatory. So from that perspective, I really enjoyed talking to you. And Merrick, I don't know if you want to close it off. I, th I think you guys both really ended it well. So I just I wanted to say thank you so much uh, for coming on and taking some time for us to talk. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, definitely hope to do it again in the future. Awesome. Thanks so much. Vengo cantando esta samba con redoble libertario. Mataron al guerrillero. Che, comandante Guevara. Selvas, pampas y montañas. Patria o muerte su destino. Selvas, pampas y montañas, patria o muerte.